On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Joshua Shandell about the necessity of Christ's death. So we cover all sorts of topics like, is it really necessary for Christ to die and in this particular way? And why has this question become so important? What were the various reform views on this? And what was the medieval background to this debate? How were those sources used? What does William Twist and John Owen think about this question? And who is really right? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm joined by Jacob Denhollander. And we are a podcast and online institution uh, that continues to grow, but we continue to focus on serious thinking for a serious church. That's what really motivates us and gets us up out of uh, out of bed in the morning. At least it's what gets me up out of bed in the morning. I get excited about thinking about all sorts of topics. And one of the ways we've tried to cash out what does it mean to think seriously is by describing and hoping to cultivate an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So I always tell everybody when we started the podcast, we just kind of, me and Brandon ask you, we're both Baptists, and we look around and we think, man, why is it that so many Baptists don't think about stuff? I go hang out with my Presbyterian friends, and they're all like thinking at this high level of theology. They know all this stuff. And then I go hang out with my Baptist friends, and there's just nothing. It's just, you know, church drama or whatever. And we thought, let's start some sort of podcast that can help push each other in those directions to say, thinking's okay. We should be serious thinkers. We should be rigorous in all that we think about, and we should be as critical as possible. Um, But as we began to develop it, we realized, you know what, there's also a need among those Baptists and other Reformed-type people who are interested in serious thinking. There's a real deficit in sort of a posture of meekness. And so then we started to really want to encourage that aspect of thinking seriously, because we think thinking seriously means thinking like Jesus. And I think James 3 is a wonderful example of what that wisdom really looks like, that meekness uh, of wisdom, the, the wisdom that comes from above, that is open to reason and gentle and all those sort of things. That doesn't mean being soft or a snowflake. It just means actually ca- caring about the other person, loving the other person enough to understand where they're coming from and why they say the things that they say. Now, today on the podcast, I'm thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Joshua Shandell. I met Joshua through the internet. You know, it's amazing how many people you meet on the internet when he was at Modern Reformation. And now he's at Yellowstone Theological Institute, I think is the, the proper name. He can tell me about more about that. Went to St. Louis University, got to study with some awesome people there. I'm from St. Louis, so anytime anybody goes there, I get excited, and I'm totally a fanboy of their work from then on, whether they're good or not. I'm kidding, but not totally kidding because I love St. Louis. Anyway, I'm going to let Joshua introduce himself. We're going to talk about his book um, on the necessity of Christ's death. I think this is a fascinating topic. Uh, I love doing thinking about historically how have different reform figures thought about different topics, particularly this one. So this will be a lot of fun. Jacob's read the whole thing, so he'll keep me honest in the questions. I have read a good segment of it, but not the whole thing. So let's go ahead and get started. Joshua, tell me a little bit about yourself, and then maybe tell me why uh, this topic was something that you wanted to research and write on. Sure. Uh, well, first I, I should say uh, thanks, Jordan and Jacob, for 
uh, for the conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I've been a big fan of what you guys are doing at the the London Lyceum, and so uh, so it's a real pleasure to uh, to join up with you today. Um, so, as you as you mentioned, I am a, th- a professor of theology at Yellowstone Theological Institute in uh, the southwest corner of Montana, just up above Yellowstone National Park uh, in Bozeman. And uh, yeah, it's a great place to work. We've got a lot of uh, really cool things going on here. So uh, as you also mentioned, I I, uh, came to Yellowstone Theological Institute from an editorial position that I held for a couple of years at uh, Modern Reformation Magazine. That was after I finished up my my doctoral work at St. Louis University. So I, I you know I teach theology courses here uh, and a bit of b- biblical studies uh, as well. As far as what got me into the um, the necessity of Christ satisfaction as a, a kind of topic, um, I mean th- there there are a number of different kind of stories I could tell you know that that in one way or another led to the um, to the project, but fairly early on in my doctoral work, I was originally considering writing on Faustus Socinus and the Socinians uh, of the the late 16th and into the 17th century. And there's there's lots of um, sort of research that's that that's going on currently in in that field. And so I was thinking about writing that. But as I began to read more and more of Socinus. Um, basically, I I didn't think he was a very good theologian, and I wanted to be a good theologian. And that's not just because I disagreed with uh, so much of his conclusions. Um, he, he was not, uh, if I can say it, he was not impressive as a thinker. And so I thought, you know, if I'm going to spend all this time doing research and writing, I, I really want to learn from someone who uh, who's worth learning from. Uh, who's a who's a solid thinker, uh, solid theologian, and so I decided um, to look at at William Twiss and and John Owen. Um, it turns out this is a spoiler alert. I, I actually think William Twiss is a solid theologian and a solid thinker. Owen, in different ways, not so much. So in in any case, I did learn very much from uh, the both of them. Uh, and and through them, they they kind of pointed me into the uh, the the great medieval scholastic tradition, and uh, and have learned much from that as well. Um, so yeah, I wanted to learn from someone uh, who 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 was a, a solid thinker and a solid theologian. I also wanted to pick a topic that um, would kind of be an, an in point into uh, the Christian tradition, and so. You know, here I'm I'm talking about the satisfaction of Christ, which is kind of an entry point into one of the the Christian tradition's great you know mysteries of the faith, uh, the incarnation and salvation of God through Christ. Um, and so, it didn't disappoint in that in that respect, uh, as we might we might discuss later. There's there's kind of a lot of theological things that are going on when trying to answer this question. So. Um, so it was, a, it was a good entry point for me into uh, into Christian doctrine. 
Well, I like the fact that you dropped the hot take at the beginning here about Owen, so this will be fun. Uh, maybe we start with two things. One, can you give me like a 60-second bio of William Twist? I just imagine most of our listeners know who Owen is, but they may not be familiar with Twist, so getting a little bit of context for him, who he is, what he's doing, and then just giving me that broad explanation, is Christ's death necessary? Like, it, does everybody in the Reformed tradition think absolutely necessary? Do they think it's necessary in various certain respects? Are like, like they putting various sorts of necessity, building that into their ideas? So just that broad general idea. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right that uh, William Twiss is, is not well known. Um, when, when I first, um, and th- there are a couple of reasons for that, I think probably the majority reason for that is because he was, um, or, or he wrote largely in Latin. A lot of his more technical works were in Latin and remain in Latin to this day, and so um, are not accessible at kind of a, a, a wide level. He was born in uh, 1578 in the south of England, Speen Hamlins, Berkshire, um, and uh, born to a, a clothier uh, at, um, uh, there in, in, in Berkshire. He went off to New College, Oxford, where he received his training. He spent about 14 years at the graduate level uh, in, in scholastic uh, uh, training, scholastic theological training. And then was uh, ordained into the uh, the Anglican Church as a as a priest. Um, he he went on to have well a somewhat renowned career and a somewhat quiet career. He was renowned in that people who read him, um, and and he was read very widely both in uh, England and and also on the continent. Um, realized that he was. He was steeped in uh, in scholastic theology. He was steeped in uh, in the, the the scriptures, and what he wrote was was pretty high and technical. Um, at a, at a, he he wrote at a very high level, and so he he uh, he won some fame for that. Not only among his fellow Reformed theologians, but uh, there are instances, for example, of Dominican theologians um, offering uh, s- somewhat. Praise uh, to him for his for his acumen. Um, he was also quiet. I mean, he was offered um, different uh, chairs of theology at different uh, Reformed institutions throughout his career, and he he turned them down very often because he wanted to uh, stay as a, a, a minister at Newbury, uh, close to where he he had grown up. Um, in 1546 uh, uh, was his his death. A few years prior to that, I should I should just note really quickly, he was the first prolocutor or uh, moderator of the Westminster Assembly. Uh, so he, he he was f- sort of renowned enough at that at the the time of the Westminster gathering uh, to have um, you know. Um, Advanced his uh, his reputation for the the prolocutor uh, position there at, at the Westminster Assembly, um, but he was in ill health at that point, and so uh, it was kind of on and off again as the prolocutor, and then um, 
passed away in the, the summer of 1646. So that's the, the kind of brief uh, on, on William Twiss. Um, okay, what was the, the second question? I forgot. Yeah, so the, just the, the necessity of Christ's death. I don't Jacob, if you want to add something, you're welcome. Well, I was to. just, yeah, so I was just going to say that in your book, The Necessity of Christ's Satisfaction, you lay out kind of two positions, and William Twiss serves as the representative of what was up to that point the more uh, popular representative view um, traced through uh, Augustine. And uh, so you have you have these two different perspectives on uh, the necessity of Christ's death, and so Twist on the one hand, and Owen comes along in the somewhat more uh, somewhat innovative. So it would be useful for our listeners if you would just briefly kind of lay out the the shape of the debate, and then give a thumbnail sketch of of the two differing positions before maybe we jump into what those uh, look like in more detail. So there's a whole sort of historical background uh, to this that I, uh, that I somewhat sketch in in the book. Uh, it's it's much larger than I that I was even able to sketch in the book, but I somewhat sketch. But uh, eventually, the question becomes, um, kind of technically put, whether God could save sinners by some other way than the satisfaction of Christ. And here, maybe I should just say a quick word about the way I'm using satisfaction here. So uh, we, we, we could uh, use a, a number of uh, terms synonymously with satisfaction, like atonement or the death of Christ or the passion of Christ or the, you know, the work of Christ. Um, I'm going to try to use satisfaction here somewhat consistently to indicate um, Something somewhat precise and also somewhat ambiguous. So the precision comes in at, um, over the course of, of theological, uh, the church's theological history, uh, it has, you know, observed from the scriptures, for example, that, that sin on the part of humanity incurs some kind of debt. And then there's all sorts of discussions about what that debt is. But using that analogy drawn from the scriptures of a debt, um, the satisfaction of the debt is that something is is sort of repaid, something that is owed is repaid. So, um, and again, there are all sorts of discussions on you know what satisfaction, what constitutes satisfaction, given what constitutes the debt, and so on, and how those analogies are working. So, I'm just using it um, precisely to indicate what or that something is repaid uh, on behalf of fallen sinners. And that gets, of course, connected to, theologically, the, the passion of Christ in particular. So that's how I'm sort of uh, roughly using satisfaction here. So the question then, could God save sinners by some other way than by the satisfaction of Christ? And in answer to that question, the Reformed were basically split uh, into, into two camps, two broad camps. Um, and it turns out that this was a, this was not simply a, um, an ivory tower debate, you know, carried on in a few institutions by a few theologians. It was it was fairly wide ranging, actually, throughout the Reformed Orthodox um, period, uh, and not only among the Reformed Orthodox too. We could explore the question um, 
in the Roman Catholic world or the Lutheran world, and et cetera, et cetera. So it's a fairly wide-ranging, perennial theological debate. But it was not a confessional big deal. So I should, I, I should make sure to, to state that. This, this uh, question did not divide along camps along confessional lines in the 17th century. Um, but it was one of the, the bigger uh, intra-reformed debates concerning the work of Christ. Okay, so it's important to understand um, pretty precisely what it was that they were split over. So if you read some of the later Reformed scholastics, like near toward the end of the 17th century, for example, you'll usually read language like this, that there are basically two camps, one, a hypothetical necessity uh, camp, and two, an absolute necessity camp. Um, and we can, we can talk about those terms here in just a second. This is what Turretin says, for example, in his Institutes, uh, Volume 2, Topic 14, Question 10. Um, and many, many others say this at that time. Many in the, the secondary literature on this debate will use that terminology as well. The problem with it uh, is that it's not, it's not quite accurate, historically speaking. So, in short, um, all the Reformed Orthodox theologians denied that the satisfaction of Christ was, strictly speaking, an absolute necessity. All the Reformed are in agreement that uh, the satisfaction of Christ is not an absolute necessity in order for God to save sinners. Um, okay, so, so some basic terminological distinctions then. Uh, the Reformed scholastics used, as they used these, uh, these uh, different modal designations, absolute necessity, hypothetical necessity, natural necessity, um, this is roughly what they meant. Something is absolutely necessary when it is and, and is such that it cannot not be, nor can it be otherwise. Um, that, that definition comes from Patrick Gillespie. And he also adds, um, it can't be otherwise by any power of any agent whatsoever. So a thing is and cannot not be and cannot be otherwise. Think, for example, of uh, God himself, kind of the classic case of an absolute, an absolutely necessary being. He is and cannot not be, nor can he be otherwise than he is. So he's an absolute necessity. Hypothetical necessity uh, is basically a necessity that is contingent upon something else. This is a little bit harder to wrap the mind around, but take, for example, my sitting in this chair at this moment. I'm sitting in this chair at this moment and cannot be at the same time standing. Um, so while I'm sitting, there's a sense in which it's necessary that I'm sitting but my sitting is contingent upon other contingent things, you know, the, the chair beneath me and um, certain physical capabilities that I have and the time that I'm sitting, etc., etc. So the fact that I'm sitting and necessarily sitting is only a hypothetical necessity. It could have been otherwise. I might not have been sitting at this time. That's hypothetical necessity. And then we'll throw one more quickly into the mix, uh, natural necessity. 
the classic example of a natural necessity is when um, it is, is a fire burning. So, for example, a fire, um, you know, when it has fuel to burn, just burns of its own sort of nature, as it were. Uh, it can't do something else. You know, it can't make a kite out of the fuel or something like that. It's got to it's got to burn it. Um, but of course, the fire is not absolutely necessary. Uh, it's contingent upon other factors for its its coming to be, etc. Um, so on those definitions, and and yes, it, it it can become more complicated. The analysis can go deeper and so on. But on those sort of rough definitions of these these basic categories. All the Reformed were agreed that the, satis- that the satisfaction of Christ was not an absolute necessity, not even for the salvation of sinners, because the whole of the created order is contingent. It's contingent upon God's will uh, and his decree, etc. Um, so, if you read um, carefully in, in the literature, they're all going for hypothetical necessity. Okay, so um, so then what are the two camps? Because there really are two camps. The two camps, um, put somewhat cumbersomely and, and technically, some of the Reformed theologians argued that the necessity of Christ's satisfaction is a necessity consequent God's decree, so that's what makes it hypothetical, consequent God's decree, which decree is itself free. Uh, antecedent to the uh, antecedent to the decree, it is it is free. It's indeterminate, though it's directed by his wisdom. And thus, if you want to speak causally, the efficient cause of the necessity of satisfaction is the will of God. That's sort of camp one. On the other side, it was argued that the necessity of Christ's satisfaction is consequent God's decree. So it's a hypothetical necessity. But the decree itself is necessary on account of God's nature with a relation of the creation to that nature, to speak um, quite technically. Though that decision is free, uh, or that, that decree is free with respect to God, whether God saves or not. So God could, could save sinners or he could leave them in their sin. Once he decides, so to speak, to save sinners then certain, um, certain uh, aspects of his nature sort of kick in and determine God's will to one effect. Namely, he has to save them by the satisfaction of the God-man. Okay, so that's, as I say, somewhat cumbersome and, and, and technical. Um, but those are, those are the basic two camps. So on, the, on the one hand, you have people like John Calvin, Wolfgang Musculus, William Perkins, William Twist, Samuel Rutherford, Thomas Godwin, and many others who say it's a hypothetical necessity that is not demanded um, and not determined in any way by the nature of God. Um, And then you have, on the other hand, um, continental theologians like Johannes Piscator and Antonio Theseus and English theologians like Richard Baxter and John Owen, uh, at least the later Richard Baxter, the later John Owen, uh, Stephen Charnock, uh, etc., who who take the um, the nece- uh, hypothetical necessity, um, and it, it's like a, a natural necessity, um, yeah. as as they call it, um, beyond just the hypothetical necessity. Wait, does that 
make any sense or did I jumble everything up? No, no, no. That makes perfect sense. I just have like 10 follow-up questions that I want to ask. I'm going to start with maybe a simpler, more direct one. Maybe it's not. Are there, is there an agreed upon like source that these thinkers are drawing on for these senses of necessity to where they all share the same definition when they're talking about hypothetical necessity, natural necessity? Like, is there somewhere Lombard is talking about it that everybody's just kind of like sharing it or somewhere else? Yeah, that's, that's good. And I try to trace some of, some of the sources out in chapter three, uh, which is the, the discussion of the, of the medieval discussions of this same question. Um, so really quickly while I'm thinking about it, a note on chapter three, I try to make this clear in the book. I'm not actually arguing like a developmental thesis in chapter three. So if you go to chapter three and you think, um, oh, I'd like to see how this question and its answer sort of develops theologically through the medieval period, you're going to be sorely uh, unimpressed <laughs> um, because uh, chapter three is, is a really light sketch of the the different ways in which um, different theologians, scholastic theologians, uh, pick up and use different distinctions and then and then apply them to the debate and then those distinctions applied to the debate get picked up by like the next set of uh, thinkers and and so on so there is a development but I don't try to trace that development as much as just show what the distinctions are at play um, the most common source comes from Augustine's De Trinitate book 13 where he he lays out sort of an argument uh, against against um, the satisfaction of Christ either being the only way or being the best way. And, um, well, let me just run run through that really quickly. So he, he basically lays out this argument where he says, uh, either God could have fallen, uh, could have, uh, could save fallen humanity only by the incarnation, suffering and death of man. So we'll just call it the satisfaction. Of, uh, of the God-man, or he could save fallen humanity by some other way than by the satisfaction of the God-man. And then he says, um, if God can save humanity only by the satisfaction, then God is not omnipotent, because it seems like there really are other ways, and we're just saying God can't do them, so he's not omnipotent. If we If we say, well, there are these other ways... And God could accomplish salvation by them, but he chooses this way, the satisfaction of Christ, then we're saying essentially he's not wise. Because uh, no ultimately wise God would choose you know, this way. And so the way that Augustine uh, tackles that sort of dilemma is to say, yes, there are other ways available to God's power, but this is the most fitting way. And then he he argues um, five or six different reasons for saying this is the most fitting way. That gets taken up into the medieval uh, time period, and uh, especially among the scholastics, uh, from Anselm and then through the Lombard onto the the commentarial tradition uh, on the sentences, um, numerous kind of very precise distinctions are picked up and, and used in order to sort of further Augustine's case. So I would, I would say Augustine is pretty much the, the source for the Western tradition on this point. I mean, you can go back to the fathers, of course, and find them discussing this question also. But 
Um, in terms of the reforms use of sort of st standard distinctions, that's one of the one of the issues that uh, I, I bring out in, in chapter two. Among the reform, they don't use the same terminology. They don't always use the same definitions, and so you have to be really careful uh, to to sort through their use of these conventional signs, their their own terminology, their own definitions, and what they're actually pointing to. And so I argue that they. They, they're actually all talking about the same thing, and they know they're talking about the same thing, even though they use different terms and, and uh, ways of describing those terms. I don't know if that helps, Jordan. Joshua, there were, um, you mentioned a little bit earlier about the later John Owen, and that's because earlier in his career, uh, like in the death, death, death and death of Christ, he actually um, associates with the view that you just outlined um, and actually attributes to Arminius the the view that he would later hold. But then by the time you get to um, the uh, uh, dissertation on divine justice, he's changed his mind and he's saying, you know, hey, now I'm going against Augustine, Calvin, um, and Twist. Um, so I, I thought it'd be interesting if you could just kind of outline why he came to, out, uh, to change his view, kind of the historical background behind there. And I know historians don't always like to pass judgment, but if in your judgment, uh, he kind of maybe overreacted or, or if there were other options available to answer the questions that he was trying to answer, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. And, uh, and it's a great question. Um, and there's, there's a number of things I'd like to say some uh, I don't say in print. Um, I'll give you the sh the kind of the brief sketch of what I what I think sort of happened historically, and um, and then you know you can you can deal with all the emails that historians write in and, and say that's not so. Um, so I think when Owen was writing his um, the death of death. In that section, you rightly note he attributes to Arminius um, the, the the position that that um, that he would he would later adopt himself, like the the kind of natural necessity position. And Arminius did take up that position in his uh, review and refutation of a little work by William Perkins. Now, that that review, so to speak, and uh, refutation by Arminius is then refuted by William Twiss in his uh, Evangelicae, um, his, um, oh, now I'm totally blanking on the, um, Vindicia even, uh, Gratiae, there, there we go. Uh, his, yeah, yeah, Vindicia Gratiae. Okay, so he, um, Owen, as far as I can tell, basically copies and pastes William Twiss uh, his response to Arminius in his death of death. And I think there are the, the historical reason for that is Ohm was trying to compile very quickly this, this uh, very wide-ranging set of arguments in his death of death. Um, and, and so he, he, he's basically cribbing from a number of different Reformed theologians that had established reputations and that he uh, apparently uh, trusted Later on, in not not too much later on, only five years later, 
he's lecturing at Oxford on on the death of Christ, and there's kind of the Socinian crisis going on, and the Socinians denied the satisfaction, they denied the necessity of satisfaction because they denied satisfaction altogether. And so Owen is now not thinking as much about the Arminians, he's thinking about the Socinians, and he's trying to figure out a way to, 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 to uh, lay out a, a very um, exhaustive argument against the Socinians, and, and I, he says, I, I basically have had a chance to reconsider my, my earlier opinion, and, uh, and he goes in the opposite direction. So I think there's... Um, Maybe he was a bit too hasty in the death of death, and he just sort of copy and pasted from twists. Didn't spend a lot of time on that on that argument or those sets of arguments um, there. And then um, when he has a little bit more time to consider it, his his target has changed to the Socinians. So this uh, this is what I think about John Owen. He sort of learned his theology on the fly, uh, and you can just you can you can see this as you if you read him chronologically. So for example. Uh, Crawford Gribben's biography of of uh, Owen does this, and he just shows how he was constantly changing his mind in print, actually on a number of key issues. He, so he learned he learned his theology on the fly, and he learned it in a in a highly charged polemical atmosphere, um, which is not always ideal for learning one's one's theology. Um, so whereas William Twist learned his theology. Uh, in a in a carefully controlled scholastic environment, you know, for 15 years, Owen was like out in public, uh, where where consequences were pretty severe in the in the mid 16th century in England, uh, 17th century. So in any case, um, I think that's sort of what happens uh, for 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 John Owen and, and why he changes his mind. Uh, essentially, the target switched. Um, Okay, now I've now I forgot again the the second part of the question, um, Jacob. Well, it was it was essentially that. But do you think that he um, his the the argument that he makes because um, he's 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 concerned to to make uh, satisfaction uh, not something that that God can just you know, choose not to do. Cause he sees that if you make a hypothetical satisfaction, then you're just, you're just giving the argument over to the Socinians. Um, and so he wants to, he wants to locate the contingent necessity, not in God's decree, uh, but in the reality of God's justice. Uh, and then the necessity comes from the actual existence of sin and then God's decision to redeem um, fallen humanity. Uh, but, but in doing so, he is changing kind of a, a consensus, um, not, not an absolute consensus as you lay out in the book. Um, so do you think, do you think that there were other ways he could have gone about answering the Socinians? Was he, was he too hasty in, in his answer or does he advance the reform position in some way in so doing? That's a good question. He certainly advances it. Whether or not in the right direction, you know, that's up to, uh, I guess, later generations to, to, to sit back and evaluate. Um, I, I'm not so sure that he does advance it in the right direction. But certainly after Aquinas, his position becomes the majority position among the Reformed. And I, I think it, it's probably the only position uh, on, on the block in, in, in today's world. 
um, in, in the Reformed world at least. Um, that's overstating it, but it's, it's probably close. Here's what I think Owen was really after. He wanted to, to, to place justice as a virtue in the will of God. And on the surface, this, this is, uh, seems very similar to what Thomas Aquinas does, for example, um, in SD1Q22A1, where Thomas Aquinas says, justice may be said to be in God as a virtue in the will, which is a distributed, and there's some other things that you say about that. But essentially, it's justice is an aspect, for Aquinas, justice is an aspect of God's goodness and a sort of quasi-principle of action. Now, this is what Owen wants uh, to say, but he's, he, he, he then uh, says that, and then he takes it in a slightly different, well, a rather different direction than, uh, than Thomas Aquinas or Twiss or, quite frankly, the majority of the tradition prior to the Reformation. So Owen says that virtue in God as a principle of God's action uh, functions as, he calls it, the, the, this egress. Where he gets egress, I mean, he gets it from the Latin, but why he uses it, I don't, I don't know. It's, um, it's very strange. I've not been able to trace it prior to Owen. But he, he says it's an egress rather than just calling it a virtue. Uh, but he, he says it's a disposition, it's, it's a quasi-habit, a tendency in God. And sometimes, depending upon the external action, it sometimes determines God's will to one effect. So the, the example that he often uses is this. Say that God chooses to communicate verbally to the rational creature. God's justice does not require him to communicate or not communicate. But once he has, decided, uh, once he has uh, designed to communicate, he must communicate truthfully. Why? Because he's just. So he's free to communicate or no, but once he's willed to communicate, he must um, communicate truthfully. He cannot lie. And similarly, Owen says, once God desi- uh, designs to reconcile sinners to himself, he has to reconcile them by the satisfaction of Christ. And, he, and I lay out this kind of big, long argument that he gives to try to substantiate that. So there is no other way. Um, so here's where there's a, a contrast on, on justice in God between Owen and, and sort of the, the Twiss and, and Aquinas route. For twists, justice is a virtue or can be considered, I should say, it's really important for technical reasons, uh, can be considered a virtue in God and a kind of quasi-principle of action. But this only entails uh, that justice in God characterizes all that God does externally so that we can say whatever God does externally, he does justly. But crucially, it does not entail the determination of God's will for some of God's external actions um, to one effect, as it does as it does for Owen. So you can think of it like this: for for twists, divine justice is not a rule, a regular or a, or a standard, uh, either an internal regular or an external standard that sort of keeps his his power in check and only allows him to do a certain subset of what he can actually do by his power. Rather, um, divine justice, considered prior to God's 
external actions and even prior to his willing uh, or his decision, it's just a, dis- a tendency or a disposition or an inclination towards an order. So in accordance with God's wisdom, God selects appropriate ends and appropriate means in all of his external actions. And so he is inclined by his, his anterior justice, uh, his interior and anterior justice, he, he's inclined to keep a proper order. But it doesn't determine his will to any one um, um, uh, order. That, that's actually sort of the job of wisdom, we might say. Whereas, whereas for Owen, uh, divine justice in, in certain circumstances does determine his will uh, to, to, to one effect. Um, does, that, does that help clear up a little bit where they're going? Yeah. Yeah, and, and so when Owen tries to... Um, Owen, Owen attempts to kind of answer that question of, you know, because he doesn't want to make something external to God or uh, determinative of, of God, God's actions. Um, and so he, he says, he just locate, he just says that, that uh, God's justice is the divine perfection. Um, and how do you think, how do you think that, because obviously people in the line of say, William Twist are going, are the, their, their objection to this line of thinking from Owen is that he, he binds the freedom of God, would you say? Yeah, that's certainly one of one of the objections. And so, yeah. so in, in, in your judgment, do you think that, that Owen's appeal to, you know, justice just is the perfection of God? Uh, do you think that's a, um, an acceptable answer or do you, do you have issues with that? Sorry, you can you can tell some of my interests from my my uh, dissertation are taking over here, but that was great. It's, uh, it was it was an interest of mine for my dissertation as well. Um, so, I'm, as with so many things in, in theology, there is a way of understanding that kind of language about God properly. Justice just is the divine perfection. It's like yeah, you can you can speak you can speak like that perfectly orthodoxly if that's a if that's an adverb um but it can be confusing so without getting in, into the into the weeds when we when we predicate things of god we're taking um we're taking content that we find sort of in our world and among creatures and we are uh, we are doing some theological things with them, and then we're we're putting them in God, so to speak. So, when we find uh, justice in our world, uh, when, when we consider it first off, uh, you know, here amongst creatures, um, it's one thing. But what Owen seems to do is he. Uh, he seems to take it from among creatures, and then he he sort of edits it in such a way that it becomes another thing uh, when when he puts it in God, namely uh, perfection, for example. And so I would say, um, and th- this is a bit of a minor point, but I would say we don't 
we don't want to do that because then then we start confusing all of our our predicates uh, about God, and then nobody really knows what we're talking about. So it's best just to clearly differentiate between perfection and justice, and then and then we can uh, keep those differentiations when we're when we're predicating them of God. Um, so that's the, I think the the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is. I'm, um, I guess I'm sympathetic to William Twiss's concern. One of his main concerns is when you make justice to be this way, well, number one, you, you are saying that certain external circumstances, uh, cer- certain circumstances external to God are imposing a necessity upon God. And even though Owen really tries to say, no, that it's the justice internal to God that's imposing the necessity on the will, it only comes about as the result of or on supposition of these external circumstances. And that's just a troubling thing to work through um, at the theological level. So that, that's the first thing. And secondly, and a little bit more pastorally, William Twist. I don't think I realized this quite as much when I when I had written the chapter on William Twist, but he he will often point to the Lombard sentences for distinction forty six, which is a discussion of the mercy and justice of God, and all of the commentary tradition is made to say by by distinction forty six of the of the Lombard sentences that God is more inclined towards mercy than he is to justice. Um. That's really important for William Twist because he thinks that the tenor of Scripture um, is is that God is long of nose, uh, that he is um, patient and kind, uh, even with sinners. And so we don't want to characterize God as having this kind of internal, necessarial, ne- necessary, like, burning vengeance within him. For William Twist, that, that's actually more akin to, you know, the, the gods of the myths. And so we want to be very careful not to portray God in that way. Um, I think that's, that is a real concern, and it's a concern that is borne out in uh, some of the theological discourse over the past couple hundred years as well. Um, that, that's my take. Like I say, it's not, it's not in the book because I was trying to remain fairly well within the historical frame in the book, but yeah, that, that's my take. That was why I was so excited to talk to you so that I could probe behind the book <laughs> because yeah, right. historians are always like, no, we'll just tell you exactly what they said. And so it's good to hear your opinion. Yeah. So I, I want to, I'm curious in our own contemporary reformed ish context, do you see people following more along Owen's line or more along Twist's line? And do you think, there are pastoral consequences for following one or the other. In my, and it's, it, it, it's an admittedly limited sort of purview, but in, in my purview, um, Owen has completely won the day. Um, and so it, it seems to me in the Reformed world, um, we just sort of take it almost for granted that the uh, Christ's satisfaction of God's justice was an an absolute necessity. I think we'd even use that kind of terminology nowadays. Um, so yeah, it seems to me that that Owen has sort of won the day on this. 
Um, and I do think that there are pastoral consequences for it. Um, but it, it may not be um, always on the surface. But one being what I've just mentioned, uh, that, that um, we can easily slip into portraying God as this sort of bloodthirsty, uh, vengeance-enacting deity in the heavens who just, you know, has to, has to, uh, to, to get an eye for an eye, so to speak. Um, and we can, we can portray that, that picture of God at various levels. Uh, obviously, I don't think anyone would actually use, you know, th- those um, terms to describe him, but he can come across that way, I think, in our, in our preaching, and we want to be careful of that, in my view. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, the other thing is we might lose somewhat of the, of the beauty and the fittingness arguments for Christ's satisfaction if we go the necessity route. So one of the, one of the theological reasons for asking about the the necessity of Christ's satisfaction is that it comes as an initial question to the why. So once you establish that something is, in an orderly in theological inquiry, you want to then start asking why it is and how it is. And the, the necessity question is one that comes at the, sort of the beginning of the, the why. Once you have nailed down that something is necessary, you have a pretty good reason, and you, and, you, and you give your kind of reasons for its necessity, you have pretty good reasons for uh, why it is that sort of answers the question. If it's not necessary, then you have to move like the tradition has done to sort of fittingness arguments, and it's in those fittingness arguments that the beauty, the splendor of Christ's work for us on our behalf are really come into their own. And so I think pastorally, focusing a little bit less on the necessity and a little bit more on the fittingness, the wisdom of God displayed in, in uh, the passion of Christ, um, it can be a really beautiful thing. That's super helpful. Well, th- Joshua, this has been awesome. So clearly I, mm-hmm. I would love to talk for another two hours on this topic. This is a lot of fun. I think Jacob would too, uh, clearly. So Jacob, do you have any uh, final um, jabs that you want to make in defense of Owen? Uh <laughs> Um, I just that I think that that a lot of what you rightly note, some of the tendencies uh, today uh, leave out some of, you know, Owen's own um, the, the limits that he puts on those things. So I 100 I, I percent mm. agree with you, like with some of those pastoral implications. I think that Owen himself, if we listen to him carefully, would make the, some of those same points. Um but it's I, mean, I I've been very grateful for this conversation. It's it's been very enriching. Um, just my mind's going a hundred different places right now. So thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Uh, just on that point, I will say, you're absolutely right. Owen um, was was often a a better theologian than some of his rhetoric. And I'll you know just note he was much more in his style humanist. Mm and uh, Renaissance humanist, uh, scholastic humanist. And so sometimes, if you just pick out certain of his passages, for example, in a dissertation, where he's sort of waxing eloquent rhetorically, and you go with that, and you miss some of the 
uh, qualifications that yeah. he adds to the, the you know that rhetoric, then then you can you can go in directions that Owen yeah. himself never went. And here's an example: in um, a couple of years after the dissertation, in his Vindicii Evangelicae. He, uh, he argues vehemently that wrath is not exactly. in God. So he's following the tradition on this point, for, for example. And so, um, so again, to your point, Jacob, um, yeah, you, you have to be very careful when you read. Uh, well, and, you read and, and just as my final point, I think that a lot of the time people take his rhetoric on satisfaction and don't have any of the background, say, on his Trinitarian doctrine. And when you take some of that satisfaction yep. language without the classical constraints of Trinitarianism, you go in all kinds of directions. Yep. Yep. Well, thank you very much. Cool. Well, yeah, this has been great. So, Joshua, is there a place that people can go if they want to keep up with your work and follow what you're doing? Um, they, can, they can look me up. Uh, on the Yellowstone Theological Institute's website, um, and I've I've sprinkled a few articles here or there across the the web uh, that I'm sure a Google search might turn up. Um, but other than that, I don't I don't like have a, a web page or anything. I'm just not that important. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you've got all the right sensibilities. So I love uh, encouraging other people to to follow people like that. Um, we need more careful uh, thinkers, careful theologians who are doing it with at the proper speed. Uh, the Internet seems to have some sort of latent potency to push us all to want to go at breakneck speed, to publish everything super fast, to get it out to the masses. And like you've mentioned, it seems like there's an interesting connection between Owen's own theological context and development and what we're see- witnessing now with how that can sort of short-circuit some theological developments and then you're having to make corrections constantly mm. and you realize man if I would just slow down maybe I wouldn't have made those same yeah, errors absolutely anyway this has been a lot of fun so thanks everybody for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet and we'll talk to you guys soon you know how to book flights and hotels All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.